Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a researcher, a scholar, a writer and a self-confessed freak. She completed her PhD in 2022 at Columbia University, where she studied the evolution of narrative and cognition. She's worked as the unofficial poet-in-residence at Plastination City in Dalian, China, where bodies were being preserved and displayed as art. In her debut work, Eve, she concentrates on the way we think about sex, sexual identity, and the very forces that shape evolution. As the New York Times puts it, Eve is a page-turning whistle-stop tour of mammalian development that begins in the Jurassic era and recasts the traditional story of evolutionary biology by placing women at its centre. Kat Verhanen, welcome to Meet the Writers. Oh, thank you so much. Nice to be here. It's really, really lovely to speak to you again. We just had a a session together at Cheltenham Literature Festival, which was great. And there was so much I wanted to ask you about your life, uh, which we didn't really get onto. I mean, I suppose that, first of all, I should tell people about your book, Eve, which is really a a whistle-stop tour of the development of mammals. It begins in the Jurassic era and it comes right up to now. But I'm very interested in what made you write it and what makes you tick. You were born in Atlanta, your parents, you're a psychology professor and a pianist. Tell me more. Well, I mean, my parents' love life was what it was. They divorced when I was five. But no, 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 it's good. I lived between both of them. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Dad had gotten the job at Emory University down there. They're both up from the New York area, mostly the city in Westchester. So what that means is they were already uh, northerners in the south. I happened to be whelped there. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I came into the world, and the first 11 years of my life was in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is actually more like the Mount Rushmore of racism. But you can look that up online if you like. What I what I particularly like is that this clearly sets you up to be at the cutting edge between science and the arts because that's what your parents were. Very much so. I have a kind of I don't have a technical synesthesia, meaning I don't actually see color when I hear music, but I do have a kind of intellectual synesthesia. I'm not fully able to segregate these things in my brain. In any given moment when I'm in my art-making space, there is scientific knowledge battering about back in there somehow. And when I'm designing an experiment, I'll often be somehow also either doing lyricism or music somewhere else in my head. And when did music come into your life? You started at playing early? Oh, for certain. But I mean, it probably came into my life when I was in the womb shoved up against the edge of a piano when my mom was pregnant with me and teaching kids how to play. Of course. And so she taught you. She did. She did. Pretty much by osmosis, though, because she was she had her piano studio for teaching in the basement of our house in Georgia. And so I would constantly be hearing endless bits of repetitive piano downstairs. And of course, it was always like... You know, everybody would play it wrong for a while and then play it right because it's right. So I would always, while I'm upstairs, be like sort of correcting the pitches in my head. You went to Butler University in Indianapolis, but you temporarily dropped out. Might have done. I this bit fascinating. To join the Revolutionary Anarchist Youth Group. I did. They were ambitiously named, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what we were accomplishing, but they were great. Well, two things happened there. One, I started college a bit early. So when I turned 18, legally, I was allowed to make my own choices. And so I left college because clearly I make good choices. And then I went out and my brother was in Western Massachusetts there. And I moved into a terrible little flat with him. And yeah, I joined the Revolutionary 
Revolutionary Anarchist Youth Group there. I have to say they were among the best read folk that I had met at that point of my life. My professors, you know, they were trained in their discipline, but they weren't reading Hakim Bey. They weren't well aware of Che Guevara. They weren't actually deeply read in all kinds of alternative literature. And I was like, oh, I need to go hang out with the people who are well read. And what was the purpose of the Revolutionary Anarchist Youth Group? Well, like any youth group, it was probably to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say I, I wasn't particularly an anarchist, but I was intellectually promiscuous. Does that make sense? So they were very, very into the idea of collective decision making. They ran the local food, not bombs, which means you make vegan food for homeless people, but mostly feed your friends, depending which city you're in. And they had things like anti-carnivals, which they would call an anti-carnival. And we would do things like, I don't know, smash a television with a large stick, but then clean up the glass afterwards. It was all very fun. How did you end up here in Britain studying poetry under Andrew Motion at the University of East Anglia? Oh, yeah. He was very nice to me. He was um, the poet laureate, of course. He was not at the time, Yeah, because I've passed 40. So then this is well before he was. He was just another prof at the University of East Anglia. Well, my brother was studying for his DPhil at Balliol at, uh, at Oxford in cellular biology, uh, mostly molecular. Anyway, and I happened to do the study abroad thing and then decided to finish it out here. And it was the only place in England where I could study creative writing because at the time, all I did really was play piano and write poetry. That was just my whole thing. I grew up in a psych lab with dad. So by the time I got to university, I didn't want to keep doing the same things I felt like I'd been doing for most of puberty, which was prepping experiments. So I, I leaned poetry. Mm -hmm. And how was that experience for you? Great. Yeah. I mean, have you been 20 and 21? There are a lot of fun things in there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's when I met George Mombiot down in Brighton, actually, and we've been friends ever since. He's amazing. That's when I started dating a bunch of my brother's friends at Oxford, which is a good way to have a good dating pool. It's kind of pre-screened. Um, <laughs> what else did I do? Oh, and after that, I ended up moving down to Marseille and briefly being engaged to this uh, French-Moroccan biologist, which didn't work out, but I was 21, and it's a great way to be 21. Being engaged? to a French Moroccan biologist. Yeah, and hanging out in Marseille and in, in the Arab Quarter for a good long time. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> then you ended up back in New York. How was that? Back in New York. That was good. That was good. It was the music scene. It was working, not great jobs. It was all the things that came before I decided to go do an MFA in poetry. You were in several bands then? None of them good, mind you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all legitimately terrible, but we did make music. And playing the piano or... Geez, I've done an alt-country project. I've done some studio work with vocals. I've done an electro-rock program. So I, I've played the piano. I did MIDI programming and some drum loops. And I'm very bad at guitar. Just terrible. Just shouldn't do anything with strings, really. I should tell listeners at this point that Kat actually looks a bit like Nicole Kidman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've gotten that. I've also gotten Amy Adams. But Nicole Kidman, if she's already in makeup for a film where she's really, like, seen some shit, like, she's had a bad day. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not Nicole Kidman on a good day. Nicole Kidman, like, oh, we're sorry for you. <laughs> you then went to join the MFA program at the University of Arizona. I did. They offered me a free ride to write poetry. And what the hell kind of plan is that? So I was like, well, yes, yes, I will come and be paid to write poetry. <laughs> and how old were you at this point? 
22 or 23, yeah. And you married a musician. I did. He followed me out from New York. We had been in some projects together. And then he was in Arizona with me. And that's where we got divorced. (laughs) How long did the marriage last? Well, I met him when I was 20 and he was 30. But we didn't marry until some years later. And then we were divorced. So I think the marriage itself, the actual technical marriage, was probably like two years. It was a starter marriage. I recommend them for everyone. Everyone should have one or more marriages, probably at least two or three. I agree. Starter marriages are a really good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that meant you ended up living in your car for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the end of that marriage was uh, was not fun. No, I ended up homeless. I did. But now I was, there are levels of being unhoused, you know. So to be fair, I was teaching at the University of Arizona. I was teaching poetry at that point because I'd finished the degree at the University of Arizona, but for some months living out of my car because we were divorced and all of my friends had cats and I'm very allergic. And I didn't have the money for a hotel or anything. So no, I lived in my car for a while and I showered at the university and I kept teaching because I didn't want to finish the semester too soon. Mm. Yeah. No, actually my favorite thing there, well, favorite's the wrong word. So when you are unhoused and you have a typical female body, you have to be very careful about where you sleep because there are safety issues. So where you park your car becomes a deliberate choice. And at the University of Arizona, they have this massive stadium with a well-monitored parking lot. But underneath the stadium, they actually have one of the world's foremost mirror labs. It's where they build some of the world's biggest telescope mirrors to look for stars and planets circling those stars in outer space. So I would go sleep there, knowing that they were spinning down the glass to make these mirrors underneath me to go look for planets. You know, it's like he can keep the house. I know where I'm going. That's a wonderful attitude. More education now. You went to Columbia. I did. I went to Columbia because I had switched from verse to yeah, my stanzas became paragraphs, and I thought I should probably wrap my head around that. So I got into an MFA at Columbia first in nonfiction, but then I, the lab was really calling me. I just really wanted to do these experiments, and so I decided after that to go on and do a PhD. And your thesis was about computer programs that analyzed parts of speech from novels? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot about sex scenes in the English language for the last 400 years or so, but not specifically about their content, although a little of that, actually about their grammatical footprint. (laughs) There is a way in which we change the grammar of how we speak when we're talking about memories that have to do with highly emotional events. So I went for the most emotional events that you could do that are easy to program in, which was sex scenes and violence. I was asking cognitive questions. Uh, using these books as a subject pool. So this is like early AI. I did do some ML. It did involve some machine learning, but it was very, very simplistic. But it is true that I had to have two foreign languages for my PhD, a requirement. So I did French and I did Python, which is a computer programming language. And I think I was the first person in the department to ever do that. And maybe since, I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah. So here comes the bit that absolutely fascinates me. And this is going off to work for the uh, German anatomist, Dr. Gunther von Hagens in China. (laughs) I didn't work for him, to be clear. It was more that I cooked up a gig for myself because he, for the listeners that don't know, he invented 
plastination. So this is an East German guy. He was an anatomist, and he invented a way of replacing a body's body fluids with a polymer through a somewhat complicated process to plastinate that body and effectively preserve it much better than any other preservation methods might do. Now, you may have seen these body worlds exhibits traveling around, you know, like a child, but it's almost like a cloud or a ghost of a child because all you see are the capillaries and the the other circulatory vessels because the rest of the body has been removed. It really crosses that line between art and science, mm. I would say. And he was just as mad as you would imagine, just as absolutely nuts. He was kicked out of Berlin for the idea that maybe he was body trafficking. The jury's out. Mm, I have my suspicions. And then he lands in a totally unsuspicious place, Dalian, China, next, <laughs> where the bodies are definitely well-tracked. Moving on. And um, he has this Warhol-like factory where local anatomy students are preserving all of these bodies in this plastination process and dissecting them into elaborate art sculptures that then tour the world. So I decided I should go there and be poet in residence, mostly because I think I do my best work when I'm scared out of my mind. There's something about that, not because I like horror necessarily, but like death terrifies me. I'm very attached to existence. So I decided to go put myself in a place where there were people in buckets, essentially. I mean, I don't know how else to describe that because it, it somehow, it just got good work out of me. I am quite sure it would have done. Just tell us a little bit more about people in buckets. Oh, if you like. So... What you have are these mass numbers of corpses that are in various stages of plastination in this factory-like environment. And so they're having their skin peeled off. Now, remember, these are, these are dead bodies. Nobody's feeling anything bad here at this point. So local anatomy students are dissecting these bodies in various ways that will then go for display. And so you see skin being peeled off in some cases because they're all very anonymized. This isn't like you're going to see Bob, who knows no longer has a face. You'll see various kinds of anatomical poses. You'll see a di partially dissected man sitting on a partially dissected horse in an actual pose. And horses are very large. Having seen a dissected horse now, this is not a small animal. So they're very, these are impressive sculptures, sometimes morally challenging but impressive. Mm. So I guess all of this is just like laying the ground for your wonderful book, Eve, which basically puts women at the centre of human evolution. In that way that whoever we are in the life we've lived prepares you for that thing that you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my book, Eve, comes about mostly in a moment of drinking at Columbia. We're in a neuroscience lab that hasn't yet been built, and there's a bottle being passed around with a bunch of neuro postdocs, and I love those peeps. Shout out to them. So there's this one guy who was presenting his work. Every now and again, when you're a scientist, you have to present your work to your PI, your principal investigator. And so that means you have to go and show up with your pretty graphs and say, hello, here's what I've done. Please don't fire me. Uh, it comes up in a lot of industries. So he was presenting his work and saying, okay, okay, here's what I found. But the question they were chasing down wasn't that interesting. But he unusually happened to look at sex differences. He happened to have a good set of male and female rodents. He was working, I think, in rat. And he said, oh, but the sex differences signal here is huge. That's what we should chase down. 
So the PI wasn't interested. Now, this PI, this scientist, is an older guy, of course, at Columbia often, but has a Nobel laureate. This is a brilliant person who obviously I'm not going to name. But he wasn't interested at all in the question of sex differences. And that's the moment when I'm drinking with this friend that I learned that all of biology actually has a male norm, that we're only studying male mammals in the lab. And so unless you're specifically asking something about the uterus or ovaries, the girls just aren't there. And that shapes how we understand models of how the body works all the way up to biomedical research and very much the medications you take. Mm. Why is there a male bias? I think the drivers for these things are complicated. Is it sexism? When are things not sexism? Sure. Okay, fine. But actually, in this case, it's more a matter of philosophy of science. This is a controlling for confounds. So the estrous cycle in mammals, which you and I might call a menstrual cycle, involves a lot of mayhem, actually, in bodies that have these things. There's a lot of these ups and downs of hormones that affect regulation and functionality in many different systems in the body. And so there was a kind of unspoken agreement that, well, one of the easiest ways to control for this messiness is to just not include females in your subject pool. All good. You know, wipe your hands and move on. It sounds nuts to us, of course, we people who very much have these things and would like to know more about our bodies. But, well, no, that's how it's been done until recently. But now, now labs are finally getting in on the really cool stuff of sex differences, and it's the Wild West out there. I mean, anywhere you look for a sex difference in biology, if you're looking at mammals, you're probably going to find it. Mm. And so that's part of what Eve does is gives you that ground-eye view of what's going on in this paradigm shift in the sciences. So just going back to very, very early mammals, our ancestors had multiple uteruses. Yeah, and a lot of mammals indeed still do. The uterus comes out of the shell gland. So we were all egg layers ancestrally. It's a shame we don't anymore. Seems like a good idea. Get them out of you. <laughs> the uterus evolves from these two things called the shell gland. So you've got your your fallopian tubes. At the very top, you've got your ovaries. That's where you make your eggs. Okay, they're rolling down the tube, your fallopian tubes. They arrive at the shell gland, kind of spooges some stuff all out the outside. It makes a shell and out it goes. By the time you arrive at live birth, like us, those shell glands have been repurposed. And that's actually where the fetus ends up developing in placentals like us. We sort of dock into the mother's body instead of being laying in a nest. Extraordinary. So many other differences that I want to discuss. For instance, men and women hear differently. Oh, don't we, though? Metaphorically, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we do. So this comes in the perception chapter. There's a deep and wonderful and weird ancient history for how our sensory array came about, because that's what your head really is. It's a sensory array. It's where you're hanging your sensors. Where are you going to put your eyes? Where are you going to put your ears? Where are you going to put your nose? Usually up at the top towards the head. Now, the thing about our ears is that we have an extended range of pitches that we can hear, and that came from moving up into the trees for various reasons in our ancestral past. But in sex differences, what's interesting is that the female human ear is a bit more tuned. We both have the same ability to hear until a certain age, but the female ear is a bit more tuned to higher pitches in a range that corresponds with baby cry, mm. which may be why we find it so annoying when they do and the guys don't hear it quite as well or become as irritated. Yeah. So that's just part of it. Fine. But what's even more interesting is that we also retain our ability to hear higher pitches pitches for longer. Starting at around age 25, actually, not that old, 
male human bodies start to lose the high end of their hearing. There's this very predictable slope, and we're not entirely sure why it happens, but they start to cut off the upper ends of their ranges, whereas female bodies tend to hang on to that for longer. However that happens, what ends up happening is that men are less and less able to literally hear female voices as they get older, because our voices, you wouldn't notice with me as an alto right now, but our voices are higher pitched, and the very top end of our range starts to get cut off in their ability to hear, starting at 25. So by the time they arrive at later life, female typical voices may well sound kind of thin, a bit tinny. Why they call us shrill has more to do with sexism, but the actual sound of our voices and whether they can hear us starts to go away. That's extraordinary. And I mean, you go into all sorts of differences in in how, how we see as well, how we smell. And then, of course, the brain. Uh, so, I mean, you start by challenging the notion that boys are better at maths and science. Is there evidence of that? Well, there's always that problem of retrofit. If we believe something to be true of the world, then we go scouting around for things that surely would be why that is and why it's beneficial and where it came from, which is to say, if you already believe that boys are better at math, then you're probably going to go chase down some data that confirm your bias. Okay, fine. Is it only confirmation bias? Well, it depends what you mean by math. We all assume we know what we mean by math, but it's actually a complex suite of cognitive behaviors that produce these things. There isn't a single math spot in your head and there isn't a single math gene. So the one thing that you can see male test takers being very slightly, almost vanishingly small, but better at is spatial logic. So that's you picture a box in your head and you try and rotate it. And then you answer questions based on what you can imagine in your head once you've rotated that thing. Okay, we're all capable for the most part of doing that. It's just that male test takers do it very slightly more quickly, mm. actually. Now, if you give a female test taker enough time, and we're not talking hours here, we're talking seconds or minutes, she will also come up with the right answer. But in time-based tests, it often becomes the signal of who's better at it. And that is one thing that does come up in math. But no, what you actually see is more male variability in math abilities. And more low-end, who are particularly bad at it, and very slightly more proportionally, again, if you've got a curve, up towards the high-end. But that doesn't mean there are more high-end mouth users among male brains, yeah? It's more that there's just more distribution, and we're falling a little more neatly under the curve. But we are very clearly equally good at math. Mm. What about this idea that there's a kind of hysterical or neurotic or depressive-inclined female brain? Is the female brain more fragile, more moody? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no. How about that? How about we'll just get the nice, clean answer and say no. I will say, however, that female patients are more diagnosed with depression, major depressive disorder. We're more diagnosed with depression. Yeah. Presumably because we're more likely to ask for help, though. Yeah, so there's diagnosis bias there. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's always a messiness in the data. But the signal's strong enough that there may actually be something physiological there, but no one's entirely sure what those drivers might be. And it's certainly not the case that we are moodier in the thinner or even diagnostic sense of that, that male patients who have bipolar disorder tend to have more extreme versions of it, tend to have bigger swings. That certainly counts as moody. And there are a wide range of mental health problems that male patients absolutely do suffer. So in fact, men and women and people 
people of all genders arrive at mental health issues roughly equally. Mm. There's just a slightly different set of the types you might get. But no, it's absolutely not the case that the female brain is more mentally unstable. Now, what about chromosomes XX and XY and Mm -hmm. people who go from XX to wanting to be XY? So I'm queer, but I'm not genderqueer, so I won't be able to speak as authentically and beautifully about their lives as they would. But I can say that what they usually, for my friends who are trans women, it's not that they desire to be XX. They're usually pretty chill about their actual chromosomes, right? It's more that they desire to live their lives under the gender identity that is true for them, which is a very social thing, actually. Do people see me as the gender I identify as? Am I able to live my life in this complex often very sexist world in which we have roles for various genders and am I allowed to fit where feels naturally to me? So in terms of sexism, the biological impact of sexism on (laughs) us, on the world, I mean, that's, that's really what's at the heart of the book. Well, there's no getting around it. It's it's certainly not the case that there's anywhere in the world untouched by sexism. But in my book, in the last chapter, I try to take a more mm, scientific view of what sexism actually represents. Is it actually a matter of male dominance? You know, the guys being jerks, right? Which is not like something unseen in a chimp, mm. to be fair. The females are too, but oh my goodness, that is a, a male-dominated society. Or is there something that's interesting about about human culture making and human society here. So if it is true that our biggest problem, and I think it is as a species, was that we're pretty crap at making babies. Well, what we did is we behaviorally worked around it. On the one side, we invented midwifery and gynecology, and we had these behavioral workarounds, these tool-based workarounds for not dying so much when we have children. Cool. Very good thing. I'm all for that. On the other side, we also have social rules that regulate access to female bodies because quite a lot of the sex rules that almost every culture that I know of in the human world creates has to do with regulating where female bodies can go, what parts of them can be seen, whom can interact with these bodies, in what context. And in other words, in its deepest sense, these sex rules are fertility regulators. They're controlling local ways of having sex and making babies and how that child rearing might account. It's also a whole lot of suffering and we should do better by women and girls. But in that global sense, in that big biological sense, what's happening there? Well, sexism for a long time, I think, in our evolutionary past would have gone hand in hand with gynecology. Do you see? In the sense of not sexism in the way that if you are a female listener, you have had males be jerks to you. Not that. But rather the ways in which where your body can go have been controlled by cultural norms. That thing. That that would have controlled when you would become pregnant in the ancestral sense. And there may well have been perks to that. Uh, Most societies have strong sex rules around not having sex with children. I'm all for that. I'm good for that, right? Let's not have uh, pregnant teenagers be a norm or God even younger. Yeah. But of course, I'm not for all of the ways in which we are now suffering. But the thing is, is that if that's the main perk, if that's the main driver, not simply males being jerks, but that there was a deep ancestral thing here about helping us survive our crap reproductive systems, well, our gynecology is a lot better at that now. Mm. So way ahead, right? And we're only just finally able to get our heads above water. And now is when we get to 
choose. We can actually make choices about how we want to be and how we want to go about doing this culture-making thing and whether or not we're cool with egalitarianism. And frankly, I hope we become more so. Kat, it's a brilliant book. Thank you so much for opening my eyes to so much. Thank you for having me. Eve by Kat Rohanan is published by Hutchinson Heinemann and is out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to producer Tamsin Howard. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>